Hello and welcome to the Rabbit Hole Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Nunez. The panelists today are William Jeffries and David Anderson. How's it going, guys? It's going well. Going well. Hey, great. Awesome. Awesome. Today, we'll be talking about pair programming, remote programming, and mob programming. And for those who are unfamiliar with any of those things, we're going to touch on those topics and figure out what experiences we have with them and the cool aspects and the not so cool aspects and why we enjoy doing the pair programmings. So um, let's do it. So what do we mean when we say pair programming? For the listeners who aren't familiar with that term, does somebody want to toss out a definition or an explanation? Pair programming uh, is basically when you have two programmers working on the same task and not just on the same task at different workstations, but typically at the same workstation, sitting side by side with one monitor, maybe one keyboard or two keyboards. That's kind of a detail. But they're both going to be looking at uh, the same piece of code, and there'll be two different roles that the two different programmers will switch between. One will be driving, and they'll be writing the code. And the other person will be navigating, and they'll be trying to do more of the thinking role and direct the person who's driving and look out for any pitfalls and let them know what's up. Man, this, that's a pretty good definition. You sure you didn't uh, use the Googles? <laughs> no, man. I think just, you cheated, Dave. No, I just, I just, I just read uh, extreme programming. You know, art of art of agile. Oh, Every day before I go to yes. bed. <laughs> there you go. What was your first experience with program with pairing? Um, so for for me, my first experience with pair programming was kind of late. I did a programming retreat called Recurse Center, and it's self-directed retreat, and everyone works on what they want to work on, but often people will group together for projects or for kind of doing spikes, like small explorations about a technology. And, you know, that, that was my first time doing that. Like previously, I was working at a company where all the programmers were remotely distributed. So it wasn't very easy to work on pair programming. But, you know, at, at Recurse, I, I first had the opportunity and it was, it was a really awesome experience to have. Um, pretty eye-opening because... A lot of the time that you spend programming by yourself, you, you might be doing a lot of research and thinking about how to get something done and having that context switch between you know, thinking about it and actually doing it can be challenging. But when you have someone sitting there next to you, then it becomes a lot easier to have that like social pressure to get started and like, you know, time box things and say, okay, we're going to look at this for 15 minutes, do some research, and then we're just going to jump in and see where it takes us. So I, I did find that when you have two people, it's oddly way more productive than for either person to work by themselves. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think if for no other reason than I, the fact that I cannot get distracted, pair programming is super valuable for me. Like if you are working on the same computer as another person, working on the same task, you really cannot stop and check email or the news or get distracted by a text message on your phone because it's just like so obviously rude 
the social pressure to, to continue like paying attention to what you're doing is really effective, which is actually the, one of the main reasons why I have to use Pomodoro, the Pomodoro technique, because I couldn't actually pair for eight hours straight, or I guess two four-hour segments straight. When I pair, it's so all-encompassing and like it's like having a conversation for all day. And you need, if for no other reason than to go to the bathroom, you need breaks periodically. I actually joke around about how my bathroom breaks are my body's Pomodoro clock. <laughs> because if we skip too many Pomodoro timers, I'm just, I'm just sitting there doing the pee-pee dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially if you're hydrating properly. But yeah, I guess uh, that's, a, that's a good point. You do need to recharge every now and then when you're doing your programming. Especially as, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only programmer who's an introvert, but I, uh, like, as an introvert, like, it, it is very socially draining to be like, in that close contact with someone for so long. And you know, it's really quite intense, the level of involvement that you have and the, the depth that you get into the conversation and, and thought that you're having with the other person. So... Um, it definitely helps to like break that up into uh, into chunks, and also to enforce like the idea of switching between the roles because it's very easy to kind of just sit there in the navigator role and get out the popcorn and like watch the other person go. So having that that bell to ha- make you do that switch is really helpful. On my project, we've been using a a, a chess timer. So my pair and I will each get a clock, you know, and we can monitor how much time we're spending driving because when it's the other person's turn to start typing, you can hit the chess clock and it'll, it'll uh, stop your timer's countdown and start theirs. And then that way, if somebody runs out of time while the other person has a bunch of time left on their clock, you know that that person was uh, hogging the keyboard. That's been, that's been helpful for me. For my, my tendency is to hog the keyboard. So I'm constantly trying to keep myself in check. I'm the one who bought the chest timer and brought it in. Yeah, I think um, the first time I had paired, I was also learning the language in which I was pairing it. So I came in as a, as a, as a Java developer, and I was in a Ruby on Rails project. So it was really, really helpful to have someone there next to me. Together, we were A, able to solve like the problem that the client had, but it also like taught me, you know, like the intricacies of Ruby and stuff like that. So I was literally writing Ruby code with like semicolons at the end and doing all sorts of weird things that you don't do in Ruby. And someone was there to say, no, no, Mike, you don't want to do that in Ruby. The syntax is simply this and you want to do that. And, and let's refactor a little more. So I definitely gained a lot of knowledge in a programming language through pairing while still bringing value and content to the client with whatever stories that they had played out. Um, Ever since then, pairing has been great and I I really enjoy it. I pair whenever I get the chance to because it's, you know, it's a chance for you to, I mean, you had mentioned before that as an introvert, it's like very draining. I would say that I'm the opposite where like I look forward to that like contact and get a chance to speak to someone about the problem that we're solving together makes it a lot more fun than if I were doing it by myself. 
Yeah, yeah, I definitely can't argue with that, that it is more fun. It's just so much more engaging when you're like not only being more productive, but, you know, interacting closely with someone. Have you guys seen Live Coding TV? No, what is that? It's sort of like Twitch TV, except for Live Coding. I did it for a while. I was working on open source stuff. And whenever I was working on it, I would, I would log on to Live Coding TV and live stream myself, like my screen. And also a little picture in picture of my, my face. And you get people from, you know, like random people on the internet coming into your channel and like commenting like, oh, hey, it looks like you missed uh, a variable declaration over here or whatever, giving you suggestions and asking questions. And uh, it was super fun. I really enjoyed it. And um, I think it has a lot of potential as a way of learning languages. Like you were talking about how you learned Ruby by pairing with someone. And I remember I, I taught another developer JavaScript and one of the first exercises we did was while we were pairing together, I asked her to direct me in like pairing hard mode where I would do nothing except for what she explicitly told me to do, but I would do all of the syntax for her. And so she got to do all of the actual programming work without having to worry about whether or not you needed semicolons or where the parens go and so forth. And she gave me really positive feedback on that as a way of learning a new language. And it occurred to me that, that I could probably get that same experience myself or something close to it uh, by getting on Live Coding TV and just watching other people in my target language. Yeah, I, I've, actually, I've actually seen a lot of websites where they offer kind of a remote mentorship or remote pairing experience where you can pay like some hourly rate and use some collaboration software to work on the same editor with someone, some more experienced programmer on a problem that you have. Like, I guess it's something for freelancers to get, get that experience, even though they, they're physically uh, separated from people who might have that expertise. Yeah, that might be a good transition there. I don't know if you intended this, but that's a very smooth transition over to remote programming. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> I mean, even even before, my experience with remote programming it has been very difficult. Um, we used uh, Tmux before, and I'm not really, uh, like, don't kill me, but I'm not, like, really well versed in Vim to be useful in it or Emacs. But even then, like, you know, I was still learning how to Vim remotely and that still worked out fine. I just think that the number one thing you need is an internet connection, like a strong internet connection. Because like if one of you guys are lagging, you're going to have a bad time. Yeah, that's true. Like I, I had tried doing remote pairing with folks in India and that was always always problematic it's very hard to get a reliable connection out there and you know the software that we have we're trying to use may not have been quite ideal and also like when you're trying to collaborate with someone who is far removed it can be hard because you don't have those like subtle social cues like you can't you don't have body language and you can't just look over and see if the person is thinking and and they're driving and and they're like they stopped or if they're checking their phone or whatever uh, I, I feel like it might be hard to get that like kind of social pressure too 
Yeah, I think that Vim is also totally not the answer to like people's pair programming woes. Like, I mean, my experience, if you're doing web development at least, being able to share via Tmux doesn't really help that much. Like, you can't do web development without being able to share a web browser. What happens when you need to open the like the the Chrome developer tools? Like, what happens when you need to see when you need to refresh the page? So. For me, it's been all Screen Hero. But what I've found is, if you are pairing with somebody in Screen Hero or whatever tool it is, the person who is sharing is always the bottleneck. Well, not always, but almost always the bottleneck. And the reason is because for most carriers, for most um, uh, internet service providers, your upload speeds are lower than your download speeds. And so if you have the person with the higher upload speeds be the host, you're generally going to do better. Yeah, that's true. So what, what editor do you guys normally use for pair programming? Because I guess like we, we kind of had a little tiff about Tmux and Vim and Emacs. Obviously, the three of us would not be pairing very well, very well right now if we're, we're trying to like <laughs> <laughs> satisfy all of our, our needs. So like, um, what kind of editors do you normally try to use for that on your projects? I mean, I used, uh, I think I've done a screen hero with, I've done, this was like really, really laggy, but I've screen heroed with RubyMine. When you screen hero, you can still like, well, you mentioned before, the you can share the screen so you can kind of see what's going on. But RubyMine just takes a lot of resources. So that only adds more to it. But that's one that I've done it and Tmux. I don't think I've ever done anything beyond that. There's an excellent XKCD about the editor wars. Mm, there's uh, like cue balls sitting there, and and somebody comes over and looks at his shoulder over his shoulder and is like, "Nano, real programmers use Emacs," and then somebody else chimes in, "Real programmers use Vim," and then it goes, "Real programmers use Ed," and then it goes, "Real programmers use Cat," then it goes, "Real programmers use a magnetized needle and a steady hand." <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's like some programmer in Brooklyn who's doing that right now. Exactly. So I remember using Atom Pair back in the day. And by back in the day, I mean, I don't know, maybe last year, not that long ago. But it was it was pretty janky. And I have heard that they've made a lot of progress now. And like when you, sw- it used to be when you switched tabs, the other person would not know that you were on another tab. And I think they've fixed that now. So that that might be an interesting thing to experiment for for people who use Atom. I think that there there was another project out there, Flubits. I think that I think they got shut down or rather gave up. <laughs> I, I did see that there was a Flubits plugin for for Emacs. Being that I'm not remotely pairing with someone, I, I haven't looked into it too deeply. But it it seems like pretty much most of the editors have some kind of a remote pairing plugin. Sublime has one as well. So I remember using them a while ago. So I checked their website a month or so ago, and it was just gone. So I thought they had gone under, but I'm on flubits.com, and it looks like they are at least still hosting. As I recall, these are the guys who forked Vim. Apparently, Bram Moolinar, or I'm probably butchering his name, but the guy who created Vim is really iron-fisted about PRs. The Vim, and they needed to implement asynchronicity in order to interface with their with another editor. And 
allegedly they spent months going back and forth with him and building out a pull request. And at the end of all of this labor, he told them that he was just not going to merge their pull request. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm looking at their website and there's there's not Vim here, only NeoVim. Yeah, I think they actually made NeoVim by forking Vim and then merging their own pull request. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you do it. Merge your own pull request. Don't do that, kids. Please don't. I remember I remember using this, and what was cool about it was that one person could be using Emacs and another person could be using Sublime or whatever. You could have different editors, and it oh. would sync up. It would sync them up anyway. Okay, I like that. I like that idea. The problem with all of these like editor plugins, in my mind, is that they don't tackle the shared browser bit, and you need that. You also need audio, and preferably a video of the person. That would really be ideal. Yeah, video I think would be pretty huge. I don't know. Maybe you could still make it more performant, because you would only need to stream a very small video file, of, or like video uh, window of the person's face, and then diffs showing the code changes, and I don't know how you would sync Chrome. It seems like you ought to be able to have like a... a Pair in Chrome plugin. Someone should. Build I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was out there. They they used to have like Chromecast and all that fun stuff. But yeah, like the the less thing that you're shooting up your your pipe, then the better it is for your lower upload speeds. Like so, something like Fluebit sounds like it would be ideal in a low bandwidth situation. But like to your point, like you won't have the richer media experience with audio and. Um, and video and whatever else uh, might be happening on your partner's screen. I've been pairing in a really low bandwidth, like with a with another developer who's got major bandwidth restrictions, and it is it it is really tough. I have to say, like that interruption to your thought process when you're typing, and the the screen stops responding to what you're typing, and then you try and fix it, and then all of a sudden all of your key commands go through at the same time? Oh, like, gosh. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I've, I've definitely done that before with like writing SQL commands or something on someone else's screen. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. What a mess. One of the issues that you brought up that was interesting that has happened to me in pair programming that didn't in remote programming. Um, you mentioned that one of the applications will allow, it, allow you to use any editor and it'll still sync up correctly, which is pretty cool. In a pair, regular pair programming situation, I used to pair with someone who used to type in Dvorak and I used to type in UX normal. And like that, it was kind of like we had to set up a system in place to know, hey, if you're going to drive... And I'm going to take the keyboard, make sure you switch it back before I end up writing in Dvorak, thinking I'm writing in English <laughs> or in American, as I like to call it. On the top of the icon, uh, you can keybind, like we used to have, I think it was Alt Spacebar, and it would change. It'll toggle from like DV to the American flag. So you say, all right, if it's America, that's me. It's my go. Boom. And if it was the other person, it would, it would be uh, Dvorak. 
And in pair programming, we had to keep that in mind. But when we did it remotely, like he could type in in Tmux, he could have done whatever in Dvorak, and it wouldn't have mattered because the key bindings are all the same. So for Dvorak, like refreshing my memory, that's it's like a weird layout for the actual keys themselves. Like you don't have QWERTY, you have yeah some other thing. You have like all the vowels on your left. It's the idea is to keep your fingers on the home row as much as possible so that you can type faster and strain your fingers less. Yeah, because I think the person had a uh, had uh, wrist issues, so he felt comfortable typing in Dvorak, and it was pretty interesting. I was just not ready to learn a new keyboard layout like um, at work. I felt like that was too stressful. I wasn't ready for that at all. <laughs> It's uh, literally like everything so like, you know well, we were, is wrong. You're, you're down to like yeah, and single then, finger then when he, packing. He's like, hey, you want a remote? And he remoted that day and hey, everything was all fine. All good. So um, maybe maybe we could talk a little bit about like challenges, like getting it to work on projects that you're on or what are difficulties that you've had with pairing and, and getting it to be effective. I had one experience on a team where it was a big corporate client and they, and they had a hard, they, they had a very time consuming process for issuing new laptops. And so for my first month, I didn't have a, a company computer that I could get a copy of the code on. I had my computer, but not one of the client issued ones that had passed through all of their security checks and whatnot. And so I asked one of my colleagues if I could share his computer and he could, you know, get me up to speed on the code base and whatnot. And I would just hook up two monitors and two keyboards and two mice. And so we ended up pairing for that first, for that whole first month, because just by happenstance, that was kind of required. And it was a great experience. We ended up getting to be really good friends. And it also sort of set a precedent for the rest of the team to do pair programming. It was funny, like the, I think it was the first or second week that we were doing it, he invited me to a meetup. And we, I went to the meetup with him and it was sort of just completely by coincidence, they were doing a workshop on pair programming. And I remember he turned to me and he was like, oh, this is like a real thing that people do on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> so did, did you like, did he take that in there? Did you like kind of subtly introduce him to pair programming without I wish I could say that it was like this grand scheme and I was I was masterminding it the whole time in reality it, w- it was a very practical solution to the problem that I didn't have a computer with code on it um, I had some experience with pair programming going into it and so for me it felt very comfortable and for him I think it was more of a like in the beginning sort of a shock but he came around, especially after we went to that meetup. It was a code is craft meetup, and we did Ruby katas, practicing pair programming, practicing that skill of passing between driver and navigator, and doing ping pong pairing where one person writes the test and the other person makes a pass and, and back and forth. And we did, I think that was the um, meetup where I learned about hard mode. Have you guys done like hard mode in pair programming? No, you mentioned that before, but I didn't know exactly what that meant. It's when the driver refuses to do anything that would require like higher level thought. So the the navigator has to give very specific instructions on how they want the code to work. The only thing they don't have to specify is 
syntax. Like define a method that accepts these three parameters with these parameter names, and if the first parameter is nil, then do whatever, so on and so forth. And um, we did another thing called evil mode, which I think is much more common and um, also much more useful, frankly, where you're ping pong pairing and you try and write your code to do the absolute bare minimum possible to get the test to pass. So if the person says, you know, we're implementing a square function, I'm going to write a test where we pass in the number two and we get the number four. Then the other person takes over and instead of implementing what would be a very basic function, you accept your first parameter and then you multiply it by itself and return the result. You would return the number four. You'd hard code in the number four. Right. And then <laughs> you, you then you write the test, like the next test, like, okay, so you pass in the number three, it has to give you back nine and force force the other person to do the hard part. And then <laughs> you, you go back and forth and you try and... You try and force the other person to do as much of the implementation work as you can. And what's what's nice about it is that it it ends up building these super robust test suites. Because it right. handles it's... every possible edge case. Because you've been trying to catch you've been trying to force the other person into these edge cases. Right. It's like kind of gamifying TDD where you're like punishing the other person for not writing the like a proper test case it's still I, I would argue it's still a proper test case it's just you know a good test case is only going to handle one like one scenario right like you wouldn't right. want one spec to handle every possible edge case yeah you have to get enough constraints to properly pen down what the functionality is going to be well that's funny so it's called evil mode of pair program or test driven development that's what they called it at that workshop, and I liked the term for it. Because there's also evil mode in Vim where it'll punish you with um, like a one-second timeout if you, if you hit the wrong key to force yourself to learn how to do the right key bindings. <laughs> <laughs> it's so annoying. Yeah, that, that, that's, uh, so evil, evil, evil mode, I used to call that wise guy driven development because you're just trying to one up the other person <laughs> like a wise guy. And you're like, oh, oh I like yeah, that. that, that just four. And then you, you have like a snarky one-liner after the person finishes writing their code. Like, what are you, a wise guy? Yeah, what are you, a wise guy? What if you're a wise guy, eh? I'll show you who's a wise guy. Then you go back and forth, being wise guys. And whoever, at the end of that, at the end of the wise men pair programming session, you do have like a ton of tests because you just try so hard to, you know, have the other person fumble and are forced to implement something. And then it, the test is just great. The, the, what comes out of it is awesome. A wise guy driven development and there's evil mode. I'm going to have to use one or the other depending on, on the shop that I'm in. <laughs> You're going to see what, what the uh, crowd is like. Have you guys done much mob programming? I've had the opportunity to do that once. Actually, here at Stride, like really quick, it was uh, during one of the, the open source nights after one of our recordings of the podcast, actually. And I walked in and saw there was about four or five people pairing. Um, well, not five people pairing, but it was just literally on the big TV, uh, I would say about like 40 inch, 
TV and the computer set up and there's one driver and then there's like five people just watching the driver. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's actually my experience as well. That, that is literally my experience because I was one of those people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, so I mean, you probably have more because you were in the room longer than I was. What, Tom? Because yeah, I saw it. Yeah, I was yeah. like, whoa, there's a lot of people that have a lot of opinion. <laughs> How do you move and stuff like that? Tell me more about it. It was really fun, actually. Like, so we were working on a JavaScript code base using React and Redux, and we were trying to dig deep and find a bug uh, in an open source code base. And I had never seen this code. Actually, none of us had ever seen this code base before. Some of the folks in the room were familiar with ES6 and React, uh, but I w- I'm on the less familiar side of that spectrum. So I think like in this pair programming experience or the mob programming experience, I experienced a lot of the things that we've been talking previously about pair programming. Like, you know, there was that guidance for, you know, learning the language. Like there's plenty of people in the room who were able to shout and, and let you know what the appropriate syntax was. So I was kind of nervous going up there and like taking the keyboard because it seemed pretty high pressure, but actually it was really fun because it was so collaborative and because it was kind of like the hard mode programming, but everyone in the room was doing the hard mode. So it was actually pretty easy for, for everyone. So, you know, like when I was stuck, like there was uh, so many people in the room who had, uh, had ideas about where we should look or what code we should update, you know, what the method name was. And even myself, like when I was part of the mob yelling at the person who was in the seat, even though I wasn't the most familiar with React, like I was able to pull up the docs and look at the docs and even teach some of the people in the room some things about how objects are different. Uh, plugin libraries for React behave. So I, th- I thought that was really cool. Would you do it again? Yeah, definitely. I, I'm I'm trying to think like if there's a situation like in the business world where this might happen. It's really exciting, and I mean, I guess you wouldn't do it every day. Like you wouldn't have all of your developers come into a room and just yell at each other all day. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to think of like where in the scheme of things like this this could fit into an actual project but like for for a fun project with friends it's absolutely the best my experience with my programming has been usually some subset of the team i've never done a mob programming session with the entire team but i think when you're pairing, it's often really helpful to bring in a third party if for no other reason than to break a tie. You know, if you've ever been back and forth with your pair on some some nuance of an implementation that you just can't agree on, one person thinks it should be the one way and the other person thinks it should be another way, I find it's really helpful to bring in a third person and say, hey, why don't you pair with us for a little bit and you break the tie? And we'll just both agree to go with whatever whatever solution you think is best. And sometimes that turns into that other person wanting a third opinion or fourth opinion. And so you end up with a big group of people all, all you know, huddled around the screen watching, watching one person sketch. And I think that has value. Scaling it up to the point where you have an entire team of people who are regularly 
working on one single work stream is an, another level of that that I haven't personally experienced, but I have heard that there are teams that do that. I don't remember if it was the Ruby Rogues um, or if it was another podcast, but I, I heard a podcast on mob programming and the person giving the interview worked at a company where that was exclusively what that team did. It was like eight or nine developers and they would all mob program every day. And apparently that team was really high performing within the company. So whatever they was doing, whatever they were doing was working. And their explanation was that you had perfect agreement about all of the decisions that had ever been made in the code base <laughs> because you literally had everybody on the team there all the time. I guess you don't have any merge conflicts also. <laughs> I think um, one of the things that's pretty cool, I guess like in this team's example as well, is for like really big architectural designs that you want everyone to be a part of. Everyone is in that room to know exactly how that particular feature was implemented, which I think would be pretty good. Yeah, I, I like that. Like kind of having that as maybe a starting point, like where everyone is in the room, like laying a foundation down and then maybe breaking off into smaller pairs as, as necessary. Yeah, I'm thinking about doing that soon at the client that I'm currently in, just to bring it up and see what people think. It was like pair programming is pretty uh good. Like the client likes it uh, when it happens. So I'm gonna. I wonder if I can bring like two or three front end developers and three back end developers to determine how do we implement a feature that may like we may have to deal with this for the entirety of the code base um, for this feature that we're building. And I think that if we have more than one person making decisions. Um, would definitely make the code better in the long run. Cool. That's awesome. Does anybody have any particularly good pairing experiences? Um, good ones? I would say I know that I had a great pairing experience when at the end of the eight hours that I pair with that person, I'm like exhausted. Because that shows that like, you know, I think it was definitely mentioned before, you know, there was no time to check you know, Facebook or your emails or lollygag or whatever the case may be. Um, it's just like intense, uh, you know, intense work with this other person who you want to support and get the job done together. And, and it's just like great work. You go, you bounce back and forth on ideas. So at the end of the day, after all that talking and all that, you know, all coding and programming thinking, you're just like drained. I like, just want to go home and have dinner and go to sleep. I think those times are definitely great times of pair programming for me. Yeah, for for me like I feel like the best pair programming experiences are are when you each have like kind of a different perspective or a different set of knowledge and things that seems really hard by yourself then become really easy and uh, you can help each other remove obstacles very quickly. And uh, I think that's that's when the technique really really shines. And you know, because of that, because you're not just sitting there like you know trying to find an answer to a setup issue, for example, or figuring out what an esoteric error message means. You have a lot more time to actually be creating good code and really burning yourself out for <laughs> a good sleep at the end of the day. 
So the like the feeling of tiredness at the end of the day is sort of a flag that you have really given it your all and that your pair has really brought out as much of you as you can give. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I agree. I think another thing that happens to me uh, when I pair is like I reflect on the pairing session and like, you know, if something was very difficult for me or I didn't fully comprehend a feature that was made. I like try and, you know, read up on that programming language or, you know, that design pattern that we chose to do because at the end, the, the following day, you want to be better than yesterday because you don't want to let your partner down. So it's like, I always think about like, I mean, an extreme example. I always think of it like, you know, this person you're out on the battlefield with and you guys are in the trenches and trying to figure out how to, you know, how to get out alive and well, and if you're if one of you are are weak, then you guys are pulling each other back from you know producing that good code. So the next day, I want to be sharp and ready to get the job done. I know it's an extreme example, but I always think of it that way because I don't want to let like the following day I want it to be better than yesterday. So just being sharp is important, but like being tired at the end of the day meant that I gave everything at the end of the day and just want to go home, rest up and do the same thing the next day. So it's like a motivator. The fact that your payer needs you to be well-rested and fully present is a motivator to come in well-rested and fully present. Yeah. Cause you don't want to, I mean like you don't want to come in and, and not be a good pair. Right. Cause then you bring, you're bringing the team down, but not giving your 100%. I think that's called uh, what do they call that in Art of Agile? I think it's like energized time. You want to make sure that the time that you spend pairing is has a lot of energy because you guys are using that energy together to solve the problem. And if you don't have, if you come in and you're you're not energized, then you're kind of being the weight of the team that shouldn't be there. The fact that your pair derives energy from you is a is a motivator for you to bring lots of energy. Yeah, pretty much. And it's dope. I mean, you know, whatever gets the job done and I get to do it with a pair that both at work and outside of work is a cool person that I can... Because that, that, that is a thing too, right? Like I imagine it would be a very difficult pairing experience if you didn't enjoy being around this person. Like imagine that. Like you have to sit next to this person for eight hours and he's, he's obnoxious. Or he or she, excuse me, he or she is obnoxious in any way, shape, or form. Or, you know, they belittle you as you code and stuff like that. I would think that that would be a bad experience. But, I mean, if I know that I'm going to pair with someone, I want to make sure I give my 100% to the table. Have you guys had any particularly bad experiences with a bad pair? I mean, I guess for me, like, sometimes... It can be challenging to convince a new team that pairing is something that is worthwhile. You know, the developers might have a lot of pride in their own work and not want to like, you know, kind of share time with other people and kind of lose some ownership of the work that they're doing. And if, if the culture of the team is kind of, that's where it lies, then it can be challenging to, to work against that. Like if people want their name associated with a particular feature and are reluctant to pair with someone and thus share credit, then it's difficult to convince them to give pair programming a fair shot. Yeah, I think so. I think that that's definitely a challenge that you can face. 
Yeah, I've had I've had pairing sessions with people who are really self conscious as well, who don't like they feel like they don't produce good code, and that's another thing because it's one that you know, like if I'm pairing with someone, I know my code is perfect. I mean, I know I'm going to write the greatest code on the planet on that day. And I'm joking. I don't mean really mean that. But like the way that I come into pairing, the way that I come into pairing is I'm going to write some code and it's going to be good and it's going to be bad and that's okay. But some people see a pairing session as, oh my God, this person is going to look at the way I code and is going to make fun of me or is going to belittle me and stuff like that. And they may have had like a bad pairing experience where then it only... You know, it's like a downward spiral of that pairing experience, which then makes the next pairing experience worse because you thought about the last one that was bad, and then that one ends up being bad, and then it just keeps going down, 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 down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's where something like social roles can be helpful, where you know you're not trying to jump on someone for not knowing something and just trying to work with them and learn from mistakes that you're making and and just kind of accept that things are not going to be completely perfect. And that's perfectly fine. I had a bad experience with a, with a pair once it was really uncomfortable. My pair had a body odor issue and it was really strong and I just could not concentrate on the code because I was, I just like, you know, I was having a hard time breathing and it was really, I don't, I don't want to like make fun of the person. Um, like this was an actual like challenge for me to figure out how to, I, I, I sort of, I never really figured it out. Like what I ought to have done is found some graceful way of letting the guy know that there was this, um, odor issue and that if he could, address it, then our pairing sessions would be far more productive because I would be able to be fully present and bring that energy like Nunes was talking about. And what actually happened is that after a couple of days, I ended up on a different assignment to was pairing with someone else. And it just sort of went unresolved. I talked to a couple of people about what is a tactful way of bringing that up. Because I would, if I had a BO issue, I would want someone to come up to me and say, hey, you know, other people are avoiding you because of this thing that could be very easily solved with soap. Yeah. I'm always like really uh, conscious about that too. I don't know. It's just for me, I don't want to be that person. So I always have like in my bag, deodorant and like a toothbrush and toothpaste just in case, you know, if, if I eat something with a lot of garlic, the person I'm pairing with may not want to speak to me. Because I got, you know, a hot garlic slash onion breath, I might as well take the five minutes to, you know, brush it up a bit so that we can have a, like, so we can both be comfortable. I think that is the number one thing about pairing. You got to establish the comfort zone. There's another resource that people should definitely check out, and we can include this in the show. We'll include this in the show notes, but there's a, this guy who, worked at Pivotal Labs. I don't know if he's still there or not, but he's the guy behind remotepairprogramming.com. I think his name is Joe. And he has pair programmed for... He released this video. It was an AMA uh, called I've Pair Programmed for 27,000 Hours. Ask Me Anything. And it's really interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
his he's got a link to it on his blog and, and we'll link to that in the show notes. So is there anything else that we have neglected to cover that um, relates to pair programming that people desperately want to share? No, nah, I think I think we covered it. Uh pair programming can be awesome. Remote programming has a lot of applications. Mob programming is great. You know, make it comfortable, wear deodorant, and be awesome for you and your pair. I think uh, if anyone wants to add any more to that. Oh, yeah. Check out livecoding.tv. Yeah, livecoding.tv. That was mentioned uh, before. We'll add a link to that in the show notes as well. Cool. So thanks for listening to The Rabbit Hole. We had uh, William Jeffries and Dave Anderson here talking about pair programming. It was great. And I hope to see you next time. Take care. Have a good one.